Discretion is advised. This is the Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, and I'm Ophelia. And I'm Tori, and we're going to keep you up all night. Tori. Hi, Ophelia. What's up? Did you know that chickens are dinosaurs? I have heard that, actually, yes. Chickens are dinosaurs. Like, there were chickens in the yeah. era when there were dinosaurs, like big chickens, I guess. Big chickens? I guess they were bit well, bigger than oh. what we have. I don't know how big. I mean, I don't think they were like a brontosaurus, but... You never know. Like, bigger than, you know, like the woolly mammoth, bigger than what we got now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were chickens. Wow. And there are still chickens now, so basically... We're the emergent species in the chicken dystopian future. Oh, that sounds about right. Like in Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. we're the the apes in this scenario. Well, we're, we are, but we're the apes in the scenario that are now Taking ruining the chicken things planet. for chickens. That sounds right. We have like kind of enslaved them and we eat them. Well, we've ruined things for, I mean, for a lot Most of species, species, to be fair. Frankly, yes, that's true. Mm, I never thought about that. We even eat them in the shape of dinosaurs. Someone did... I know, right? Yikes. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Someone, a friend of mine did say she thought it was a shame that the dinosaurs had died out because it would be interesting to live alongside them, which I don't think it would be. And I don't think we'd be around. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh, so that's another thing that I read, that there was this giant bear... Hmm. Massive, massive bear, bigger than any bear that we have on Earth today, mm-hmm. that was all over North America. And it stopped human migration into North America for like 100,000 years. Wow. People must have got there and they were it's like, big bear. Oh, no. Mm-mm, no, thank you. Turn around. Turn around. And I mean, yeah, I mean, Same. we were around like... The woolly mammoths were around, and those mm-hmm. didn't stop us. I yep. mean, maybe they were more docile. These guys were not. These guys were yeah. vicious. So I guess people must have tried to come over, and they're like, chomp, no, get right. out. Yeah. And we said, you know what? There's a lot of other land. Actually, yeah. I think we can just keep going the other direction and, and yeah, find a good spot good. that way. Wow, that's interesting. And then they died off shortly before the woolly mammoth did. I don't know how. Right. I don't even know if they know how. I mean, I don't think it was us hunting them. Like, we literally extincted. I don't know if it had anything to do with the Ice Age as well, but we Mm -hmm. definitely were involved in that whole thing with the woolly mammoth. Shocking. I don't know what happened to these huge, vicious bears. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. But, yeah. And you should see this thing. It's, like, it's massive. And, yeah. I'll have to look it up later. So, I mean, if we couldn't handle a bear. Right. I'm pretty sure we couldn't handle pterodactyls and tyrannosaurus. No. Right? I don't no. think. We know I've we can. We've seen the movies. Jurassic Park. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, it's very handle. obvious. I mean, we can't even handle the velociraptors. No. No, no, no. We can, can barely handle chickens. Trying to get to work and then you have to worry about, like, pterodactyls. No. You can't make me. I that, No, that's just too much. I don't. I don't like traffic and that's just people. I'm not going to handle flying dinosaurs. 
I don't even like when there's like a hawk in my yard. <laughs> we had one last year. Just circling around. Yeah. Because, you know, I got those little dogs. Huh? Yes, yes. They look like a really good hawk a snack. A nice little snack. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the baby's like, she's a she's little bigger so than a small. squirrel. She's basically a chicken nugget. Yeah. Like for a hawk. Yeah. Yeah. She's a fighter, though. She'll do some damage. She would, yeah. Yep. What were we talking about again? Oh, we're doing a podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah, we got... Oh, we, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Good point, forgot, good point. Forgot. Thought All I was right. pre-podcasting there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have for me today? I have Alien Encounters. Ooh, I love these. Once again, you could just do a whole podcast just talking about people's alien encounters. They're everywhere. I just picked a few, and I'm going to... Start with my sources first, allthatsinteresting.com, alien abductions, abcnews.go.com, primetime story, pbs.org, WGBH Nova, alien cases. Ooh. Got some real sources These today. are legit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're making like PBS and ABC News, it, it's... Mm-hmm somewhat legit anyway it may not be but i feel like that's like "Hmm." there's at least some news there's an actual journalist talking to you about it yeah so the first story we're going to talk about took place in the berkshires in 1969 Ooh, not so far away when numerous residents of Berkshire County, Massachusetts, individually reported having seen a UFO on September 1st, 1969, authorities were at a loss for an explanation. This wasn't a lone sighting induced by sleep deprivation that could be easily dismissed. It truly appeared as though something uncanny had occurred. On the evening in question, residents spotted lights above Sheffield in the southern Berkshires. Many of the witnesses said that the lights were fitted to an unidentified disc-shaped craft that was maneuvering in unprecedented ways. Some witnesses claimed they lost track of time as they all gazed with stunned fascination at the object. I don't know what else you would do. I mean, I, I don't know if that losing track of time is significant. I think you you would. They talk about that a lot in the X-Files, so. Yeah. Sounds very alien Well, that's a feature of a number of, like, paranormal phenomena mm, that people... Yeah. But I don't know if you actually lose time or if it's one of those things you know when you get like really into I know writing something or or working on something and you look up and you're like oh my god it felt right. like half an hour and or it's been three hours unconscious <laughs> or if you're you know <laughs> like if they're abducting you and doing some butt stuff right there you go get in we're doing anal probes <laughs> <laughs> it's just a get in loser we're get doing. in loser we're doing what this is this there's a like an like an ugly Christmas sweater type, and it it's got the alien on it, and it mm. says "Get in, loser." We're doing butt stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes sense. And I want it. Thomas Reed was nine years old at the time. In the car with his mother, brother, and grandmother that night, the family noticed a group of glowing orbs dashing out of the roadside trees. Ooh. I think something similar happened in Rendlesham Forest. That sounds like a, a similar type of thing happened there. Reed claims that something astounding happened when heading home. His family approached Sheffield Bridge. It came to a stop off the right side of the road, he recalled of the glowing orbs. Everything got really calm. It was like being in the middle of a hurricane. There was like a barometric change in pressure. It was just like a dead silence. Then there was an eruption of crickets and frogs, and it got really loud, and that was it. But, you know, 
pay attention to the animals. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's a storm coming, if you go out and you don't hear anything, yeah, get batten out of down there. the hatches yeah. or get out of there, it's going to be bad. Like yeah. the animals know. And when there's a predator around too, animals know. Yeah. They, yep. Yeah, they say like if you need to relax, it can be very helpful to listen to bird sounds because yeah. like from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. If the birds are all chirping and happy, like there's probably nothing bad about to happen. Yeah. But if the birds are quiet, like that's when you know you need yeah. to be freaked out. Then the family suddenly found itself back in the car, but they had inexplicably lost two hours of memory. Oh my goodness. Stranger still, Reed's mother and grandmother had somehow switched car seats. Yes, so this was in an episode of like the rebooted Unsolved Mysteries mm-hmm. that's on Netflix, and I remembered that specifically, that they were like yeah. in different spots in the car, which how do you explain that? And also where'd two hours go? There was a, an incident that I had read about a few years ago when I was looking for it for this episode, but I, I couldn't locate it because I didn't have enough details in my head to locate like the name of the person, but I remember reading about someone who had been claimed he was having abductions and he would wake up and sometimes his clothes were not on correctly. Ooh. And one time he woke up and he was in a woman's nightgown, Ooh. like a pink one with flowers. Mm-hmm. And he went to some meeting now i can't find him or the other person and ask the other person about it but according to him and his wife backed him up said she met this woman mm-hmm. according to them he had gone to this meeting and a woman was there and he had this nightgown as proof and he held it up and she got up and she said oh my god that's my nightgown Ooh. and i woke up one time in different clothes that weren't my own and i had <gasps> worn that nightgown to bed and that was a case i wanted to find so badly i heard it on a podcast right and then i was looking for details so I don't know when I hear these things, are these people making it up? I don't know why people would, but people do weird things. We know that. We, right, right. The other half of our podcast will tell you. Right. People do things that... Don't make a lot of sense. Don't make much sense. But that is the one that if I could find that yeah. and talk to either them or people who talk to them, that would to me, and you're both... I mean, if I were there when that happened, I'd yeah. say, well, okay, it has to be true then. Right. I don't know how... Because yeah. I don't know how else to explain that. Right. So... Yeah. yeah. That's like clearly like, oh, shit. Which but one had this on? Well, whatever. The fact that I couldn't immediately find, find it, but I'm not sure... Like, I listen and I read so much of this, I'm, I couldn't quite track back where I'd heard it. Mm-hmm. But there are... When I was looking for it, there were other reports of people saying they came back and they had on right. a shirt that wasn't there or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, so... Who knows? Yeah. But yeah. It, it seems like something might be happening. Yeah, that's very strange. Despite any tangible evidence of the Berkshires UFO incident, Reed has remained steadfast in his account. He said over time the family regained some memory of the incident, including having been in a hangar-like facility with other people. We encountered something, said Reed. It was definitely not of this world. This hangar thing we were in was huge. It was larger than a football field. This hallway we had seen was circular with a Y configuration, almost to control the flow of traffic. This one room had a Bowdoin wall that was rounded. It's important to remember that Reed was only one of dozens of people who reported witnessing a UFO in the Sheffield area that night. Some were adults who called into the local radio station to report the sighting. Others were children who began drawing UFOs in class. There must have been 20 or 30 sketches that were drawn by children in our fourth grade class from what they saw, said Reed. They hung underneath in the the class board in Sheffield Center School. 
more than one of those hang in the Roswell Museum today. People don't realize the significance of this, and so it wasn't just us. Yeah. And it sounds similar to the experience our family had, where all kinds of people saw it. Right. And people called in. They they brought down the phone lines to yeah. the police station. Yeah. So many people called in, and there were about 10,000 people who reported this. There was a military helicopter trying to get it to identify itself. Wow. The police were coming in with all kinds of... And then when you asked it, like, oh, it was a weather balloon. Well, it wasn't. Clearly. I mean, I don't know what it was. I'm not saying, saying, I'm not saying it was an alien mm-hmm. necessarily or an extraterrestrial, but right. it was something. Right. Clearly. Because even the military and the police wanted to know what it was. And they didn't know. The Pascagoula incident. It was October 11th, 1973, when Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson went fishing on the banks of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. At first, when Parker saw blue lights reflected in the water, he thought police had come to instruct the two to leave. A big light came out of the clouds, Parker recalled. It was a blinding light. It was hard to tell with the light so bright, but it looked like it was shaped like a football. I would say, just estimating, it was about 80 feet. It made very little sound. It was just a hissing noise. Parker then claimed that three legless creatures floated out of the vessel two at him. He described all three as having mitten-shaped claws. While one was necklace and gray, the other appeared to be more feminine. When one of them tried to wrap his hands around Parker's neck, his natural response of fear oddly subsided. I think they injected us with something to calm us. I was kind of numb and went along with the program. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah. Parker alleged that he and Hickson were taken aboard the alien vessel and experimented on. Afterward, the two terrified fishermen found themselves back on the riverbank as though nothing had happened. And here's my other question. If this is just sleep paralysis or this is dreams or this is just someone's imagination, mm-hmm. how do you have more than one person have that experience? Yeah, that's that's the thing with me all the time, too, right? Like, one person could have whatever kind of experience and it's really hard to corroborate, but, like... Two people experiencing the exact same thing. It's very, 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 very bizarre. Yeah. I don't I don't know how to go against that, you know? Right. Obviously, they could have both made it up together and told the story, blah, blah, but, like, right. maybe not. They drove to the Jackson County Sheriff's Office and told Captain Glenn Ryder and Sheriff Fred Diamond the entire story. When I got in there, they had me, Hickson told the police. They, there were no seats, no chain. They just moved me around. I couldn't resist them. I just floated, felt no sensation, no pain. They kept me in that position a little while. Then they'd raise me back up. And I wonder if they weren't even those weren't even the extraterrestrials, but like a like a robot or something, or like a machine. Yeah, absolutely, it could be. Like it could be part biological, part, part mechanical. Mm-hmm, yeah. That they just sent out to do whatever. Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't sound like anything anybody else has described. Yeah. No, it doesn't. A 2018 Sun-Herald interview with Calvin Parker, who describes the incident from the banks of the Pascagoula. Oh, that was from a 2018, sorry, Sun-Herald interview from Carol Parker, who describes the incident from the banks of the Pascagoula River. Hickson claimed that a machine resembling a giant eye looked over his entire body. He said he was surrounded by inhuman, five-foot-tall, monopedal human beings. Oh, so one leg instead of no leg. That doesn't seem... Like, what's the point of having one leg? That doesn't seem boing, like a boing, very... Boing, boing, boing. I don't know. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like a very um, well, good design. Well, maybe somewhere else it is. Not Earth. 
Captain Ryder didn't believe the two men. He stepped out of the interrogation room but left a secret recording device running in hopes of obtaining proof that their alien stories were fabricated. Mm -hmm. But what he later heard on this recording made him think twice. Jesus Christ, God have mercy. I thought I'd been through enough of hell on this earth and now I've got to go through something like this, Hickson said to Parker. But they could have, you know, I guess they, well, they could have harmed us, son. They had use. They could have done anything to us. I just want to cry right now, added Parker. What's so damn bad about it is nobody's going to believe us. Yeah. With no physical evidence of their abduction, the alien story remained a mystery. Parker stayed quiet about the event for decades, but after Hickson's death in 2011, he wrote a 2018 book on the matter. Mm, that's interesting. It, it's interesting, but you will write it at a time where the other guy can't yeah. come out and say, no, that's not right. Right, yeah. Its publication prompted others to come forward, claiming that they, too, had seen a UFO that night. Mm. It makes me feel pretty good. I'm not the only one who saw something, he said. Most of these people are credible people. Okay. I'm going to struggle with the pronunciation of this. <laughs> I was very impressed with Pasca Google. See, I can't say it. <laughs> Google. <laughs> Google. At first I thought you said past Gagula, and I was like, what is happening? The abduction of Antonio V.S. Boas. In 1954, two Venezuelan teenagers claimed that they found a UFO in the woods and were only able to escape with their lives after fighting off small, hairy aliens. Ooh, hairy. That's unusual. Yep. Brazilian journalist João Martins covered the alleged experience in 1957 and asked readers to send in their own. That's when he was contacted by farmer Antonio Vias Boas. Martins paid for the 23-year-old's travel expenses and put him up in Rio de Janeiro, where Dr. Olavo Fontes examined him. Boas claimed that he experienced an alien abduction one day after reading Martins' article chronicling the Venezuela incident, which seemed rather convenient. Mm. Boas said he had been working nights in his family's field in order to avoid the hot daytime temperatures. On October 16, 1957, he purportedly saw a red star above the field's name near Joao Francisco de Sales. As it approached, Boas claimed that atop the egg-shaped craft was a cupola containing a rotating red light. Wow. As the vessel extended its three legs to the earth, Boas claimed that he tried to flee, but was captured by five-foot-tall beings wearing gray overalls and helmets, and then taken aboard their ship. Boas alleged that the beings' eyes were blue and small, and their communication consisted of animal-like sounds. After blood was taken from his chin, Boas was purportedly placed into a room filled with a strange gas which caused him to feel severely ill. Soon, a naked of an attractive female entered the room. Ooh. Boas claimed the woman was adorned with long blonde hair and red pubic hair, and that mm. the two soon engaged in sex. That's what you're thinking about at this moment, bro? <laughs> Afterwards, the woman gestured to her stomach, then motioned upwards which Boas later interpreted to mean that she would raise their child in space. What? Boas claimed he felt angry at having been treated like a good stallion by the beings. He was subsequently taken off the ship and watched it ascend into the heavens. Four hours had passed since his abduction. Though both Martins and Dr. Fontes believed the story was fabricated, the doctor noticed signs that Boa had radiation sickness such as nausea and bruising, burning sensations in the eye and skin that was painful to the touch. 
Boas later became a successful lawyer who created models of the USO from his story in his spare time. While Walter Bueller of the Brazilian Ufology Group, SBEDV, visited him in 1962 and published a report on his story, it still remains unproven. Yeah. Boas died in 1991, but his intriguing alien story lives on. Mm, that's very interesting. Now, this last story I have, it's more of a mystery. Ooh. We don't really know what happened here. The mid-flight abduction of pilot Frederick Valentich. Mid-flight? Mid-flight. Ooh. On October 21st, 1978, Australian pilot Frederick Valentich disappeared into thin air. It was during a 125 nautical mile training flight aboard his Cessna 182L over the vast strait between Tasmania and the Australian mainland that the confounding incident occurred. It's important to note that the 20-year-old, who was an enthusiast of alien stories and ufology, was a fairly experienced pilot. At 7.06 p.m., while at 4,500 feet, after departing Moribund to reach King Island, Valentich reported that an unidentified craft was following him. Melbourne Flight Service insisted that there was no traffic near him, but the pilot was adamant a large vessel was on his tail. He explained that it had four bright lights and suddenly passed a thousand feet above him at remarkable speed. For five straight minutes, Valentich described its movement and shiny metallic exterior. Suddenly, Valentich experienced engine trouble. Melbourne Flight Service asked him once again what the aircraft looked like. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft, were his final words. The October 23, 1978 headline of the Australian details Frederick Valentin's UFO incident. The last sound radio officials heard was a metallic scraping sound. Authorities presumed he had crashed, but a latest search of the area yielded nothing. Not even the Australian Department of Transit could find him. In 2014, however, new claims came to light. A UFO action group in Victoria alleged that an unidentified farmer observed a UFO nearly 90 feet in length hovering above his farm on the morning following Valentich's disappearance. More importantly, the farmer purportedly claimed that the pilot's plane was stuck to the UFO, leaking oil. Oh my God. While the farmer said he scratched the airplane's registration number on his tractor, he never came forward, claiming that the ridicule he'd received from his peers after telling them his tale had discouraged him. Unfortunately, the Victorian UFO group never managed to identify the man. So how did they find out about the story? Yeah, and like, they can just match the tail number. Like, if he had written it down, then you can tell, like... He scratched it on the tractor, but he never came forward. Well, if he didn't come forward, how, how did you, you have hear the, the story? Oh. For the UFO action group's lead investigator, George Simpson, frustration abounds. It's easy for some to dismiss, but there are corroborating stories confirming there was a UFO near Adelaide at that time. This was an experienced pilot who should have been able to identify another aircraft, but was clearly unable to. Ultimately, only a few possibilities regarding the disappearance of Frederick Valentich exist. That he crashed and his remains were never recovered, that he purposefully disappeared, or of course, that he was abducted by entities we don't yet understand. Wow. And those are my alien wow. encounter stories. I would not like to encounter an alien, but those so are just really a few of many, 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 many. Many, many. Right, yeah. That last one's crazy. Just like, obviously, like Amelia Earhart, planes can just disappear, but 
Well, look at that Malaysian air flight. How long that took? Yeah. I don't even have they ever even found it or just found I think they bits found of it. Parts of the, if I remember, um, I'm not totally sure, but I mean, he was doing like a pretty short flight. It seems like mm-hmm. like it would be pretty obvious where he should have ended up, right? Yeah. And for them to not be able to see something on the radar is really odd. Yeah, that's very interesting. That is interesting. Wow. That's nuts. Your dad's not allowed to fly anymore. Well, not with any aliens, preferably. Yeah, don't do that. Mm -mm. I'll have to let him know on my way home. Yeah. Avoid the aliens. Avoid the aliens, yeah. All right, do you want to hear some uh, sad stories now? Yours are sad? It's a little sad. Okay. I don't want to spoil it too much for you. All right. You never, I really got you last time. I guess you got me last time. Yeah. You got me good. Um, But we can do a little sad, I guess. A little. All right. So today we're going to talk about Dahlia DiPolito. So Dahlia was born at Dahlia Mohammed in New York City on October 18th, 1982. She had two siblings, and when she was 13, the family moved to Boynton Beach, Florida, where she graduated from high school in 2000. Growing up, Dahlia didn't have anything in particular that she wanted to do, so she got her realtor's license and began working as an escort on the side. So working as an escort was how she met Mike DiPolito in October of 2008. The two apparently hit it off immediately, and as Mike was already in divorce proceedings with his wife, the two planned on getting married. Their wedding was on February 2nd, 2009, just five days after Mike's divorce was finalized. So pretty quick. This was. I mean, she just met him in October? She met him in October, and they got married in February, so. Speedy, speedy. Speedy, speedy. Yes, exactly. And this actually was the beginning of a series of really weird things to happen to Mike. Long before he met Dahlia, he'd spent time in prison for stock fraud and was on probation when they met. Dahlia claims that she had no idea about Mike's criminal past until his parole officer came to their house, but Mike maintains that he told her all about it before the two got married. But kind of hearsay, not really sure. One night, Mike and Dahlia went out to dinner, and on the drive home, they were pulled over. The police found cocaine inside of a pack of cigarettes in Mike's car, but somehow, and I don't know how, he was able to convince the cops that he did not know anything about it and that the Mm -hmm. cocaine was not his, and they let him go. Which is, like, I think is genuinely surprising if he's on parole. Yeah. And they find cocaine in his car. Like, I don't know how he managed to get out of that. But. This is recent. So this is in a time where systems are all yes. hooked up. and mm-hmm. They know who he is and that yeah. he's on parole. Yeah. Yeah. I found that very, very surprising. Not long after that, Dahlia went out to Starbucks and brought Mike back an iced tea that she'd bought for him. He became ill almost immediately mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. drinking it and was laid up in bed for several days. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can kind of see where we're coming. going with this yeah. a little bit. Yeah. After this, police apparently received an anonymous tip that Mike was working as a drug dealer. There wasn't any evidence, um, and it it seems like Mike was innocent and was not doing this, but he was starting to get pretty freaked out by all of the heat that he was getting from the police. Because, I mean, again, he's already on parole. Like, this is not a good situation for them to think he has cocaine in his car, he's dealing drugs. Like, this is not good. (laughs) At this point, you say, you know what, honey? This stuff never happened to me before. Isn't that weird how it did not happen before? And And we've been married for four months. Also sketch that someone is... You know, that you get mad. I, I don't trust that, that getting... That, That's super fast, yeah. Getting a ring on it that soon, getting all your your yeah. finances combined mm, and all yeah. that. 
Yeah. So in late July, he decided that just in case the cops did manage to make any of these charges stick, even though he wasn't guilty of anything, that he needed to protect his assets. So he transferred the deed of his house into his wife's name in case anything happened, and he ended up going back to prison. And this actually... How how do people not see this stuff coming? Because they love someone. And it makes you I mean, I love my husband, but... Yeah. Well, I don't know. He's never tried anything like that, but I... I... He must have just thought he was just really, really unlucky. (laughs) You know? He must just not have realized I mean, if my husband came to me and said, hey, put all your stuff in my name just in case, I'd be like... (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah. And one article I read actually said that because Dolly was a real estate agent, she was the one who sold Mike his townhouse. Like, just a few days before they got married. She was like, oh, we'll just put it in my name for a while to protect your assets, just in case, right? Of course, this was all part of Dahlia's plan. She'd been to the anonymous tip that Mike was dealing drugs. She'd put antifreeze in his iced tea, which we've heard that story before. And she'd planted the cocaine in his pack of cigarettes. So... This is a very brief marriage before Dahlia realizes, like, she wants out. She's not into this anymore. But she does want the house and the money. Well, she probably wasn't ever into it. She just saw Mark and thought, I can get the stuff. Right. And then she's like, "Mm, I like this townhouse. I'll make this guy buy it for me. And then take it from him, I guess. Not good. So nothing really seemed to be going quite far enough for Dahlia. So she decided to call her ex-boyfriend, Mohammed Shihada. First, she began flirting with him and told him that she wanted to get back together with him. Then she got down to business. She wanted to find a hitman to kill her husband. On July 30th, 2009, Dahlia met Mohammed in a gas station parking lot. He told Dahlia that he had a contact who'd be able to do the job for her, and two days later, she could meet him and work out the exact details about how Mike's life would end. She calls him up. She's like, hey, do you know how I can get this done? He's like, sure, I know this guy you can go talk to him, you know? So a man named Whitey Jean, which is the most insane name I've ever heard in my entire life, I'm sorry. Um, He met with Dahlia in a red convertible in a parking lot on August 1st. Whitey asked Dahlia, are you sure you want to kill him? Dahlia didn't hesitate. She said, there's no changing. I'm determined already. I'm positive. I'm like 5,000% sure. I'm a lot tougher than I look. I know you came here and, oh, what a cute little girl or whatever, you know, but I'm not. So she's obviously, like, pretty serious about this. 5,000% sure. (laughs) They agreed she'd pay him $7,000 for the job with a $1,200 deposit, which she gave to him at the time. He would go to the couple's house on Wednesday morning when Dolly would be at the gym and stage the murder to look like a robbery. He'd shoot Mike twice in the head to make sure that he was actually dead. On August 5th, Dahlia went to the gym at 6 a.m. just like she'd planned with Whitey. When she got back home, she found police cars and caution tape surrounding her house. A forensic photographer was taking photos of evidence. Sergeant Paul Sheridan comforted Dahlia and told her that her husband had been killed. She sobbed in front of her house, grieving for her husband. She was brought to the police station to identify a potential suspect, a man someone had seen fleeing their house around the time of the crime. Whitey Jean was brought in in handcuffs, and the two claimed not to know each other. Because obviously you can't be like, well, yeah, that's my hitman. Then something startling happened, for Dahlia at least. Mike walked into the room, because of (laughs) course he did, alive and well. 
He told his wife that he knew everything, and she tried to get him to come over and said that she didn't have anything to do with what had almost happened to him, but he told her that she was on her own, and she was, like, immediately charged with solicitation of first-degree murder, which that's what she did, so, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of makes sense. So here's what happened. When Dahlia had told her ex-boyfriend, Muhammad, that she wanted help finding Hitman, he didn't really think she was serious, which, like... Yeah, I feel like people say stuff all the time, like, oh, yeah, I want to kill my husband, whatever, like dumb shit. You're like, oh, ha ha. But when she told him that she'd poisoned her husband's drink with antifreeze, he realized that she was going to do everything in her power to actually get rid of her husband. So because he was a good person, he alerted the Boynton Beach police immediately. And funnily enough, during the week that all this was happening, the TV show Cops happened to be filming with Boynton Beach Police Department, which is like, what are the fucking odds that this very crazy shit is happening? Cops is like, oh yeah, well, uh, we'll Excellent. help out. This is uh, this is perfect timing, actually. This episode's yeah. gonna write itself. Yeah, exactly. So, with the help of the show, the police fitted out. Muhammad's car with cameras and recording equipment for their meeting when he had told her that he had a contact who could help her out. Y.D. Jean obviously wasn't a real hitman. He was a police officer. Um, He drove a red convertible to their meeting, which was also fitted out with cameras and recording equipment. So they had all of this stuff that she had said on camera, legit, can't really get around the Mm -hmm. footage, right? The fake crime scene was entirely set up by the police department in collaboration with the TV show in order to catch Dahlia in her lies. Okay, so Australia, take notes. <laughs> this is how you catch the bad yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. Or, Try a you know, little girl harder. In this, yeah, right. put some effort in, okay? Yeah. Yeah. You're not doing the work. Yep. When Dahlia was put in jail, her first phone call was to Mike, which I think personally is pretty ballsy, frankly. Like, <laughs> I, for real? <laughs> like, they have all this footage? Come on. She told him that she had nothing to do with what had happened to him and apparently criticized him for not getting her a lawyer. Because, again, I don't... I I don't think you understand the situation you're in, hon. I don't think she did either. I don't think you're... I, I'm yeah. not going to hire a lawyer to defend the you. person who took a contract out on me. Mm, I, yeah. No. Mm-mm, I don't think no, that no. I would do that either. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work out. Mike didn't seem to care very much about what Dahlia had to say, but told her that he'd comfort her parents in return for the deed of his townhouse being returned to his (laughs) name, which I think is very interesting. But, you know, it worked. It worked. He got the house back into his name. Dahlia was let out on $25,000 bail the next day and stayed on house arrest until the beginning of her trial in 2011 the trial, she claimed that the entire thing was a stunt, and both Mike and Muhammad had been in on it, and that actually it had been Mike's idea, and they'd concocted the story from something that they'd seen on the TV show Burn Notice. For what Because reason? Mike really wanted to be on reality TV. Okay. So he thought that creating this whole stunt would somehow make him famous enough to be noticed by people who work in reality TV and get him put on a reality TV show, which kind of worked because he was on Cops. Okay, but but you you still can't put out a hit on someone. No, you really shouldn't. Because Because you didn't know that guy was a cop. That's the thing, like, 
if they could have said like, oh well, Whitey was in on it too, but like right, if they had a friend a and they were pretending this, but he was a cop and she didn't know that he right. was a cop exactly, and he only went and spoke to her because that other guy called the police and said, hey, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like you got some loose threads there, hun. She definitely does. Yeah. She said there was no plan for Mike to ever get hurt, but I don't see how that's possible if... Well, I mean, you did put antifreeze in his ice tea. You literally poisoned him. You genuinely... Oh, are you going to say Starbucks did it? Like, come on. Like, you can't... You put antifreeze in his drink. Like, it's really hard to get around this. No, I went there and Starbucks actually accidentally gave him the venti antifreeze mm-hmm. latte. It cost an extra 70 cents. Okay. It's not my fault. Not you my fault You know how they get names wrong all the time, so they got Constantly. his drink wrong. So what? It, it happens. Okay. Are you going to yell at the barista? <laughs> yeah. She also claimed that she knew she was being recorded when she was in Whitey Jean's convertible, and she was just acting the part that Mike had convinced her to play. I personally am not buying it, but that's what she said. And why didn't Mike hire you a lawyer? I don't know. I cannot think of a reason. I really can't. And the jury also did not believe any of Dahlia's claims. Really? I know. I'm it's shocked such a by that too. Story. Isn't it? She was found guilty of solicitation of first degree murder and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. But in 2014, an appeals court judge determined that the jury in her first trial had been improperly selected and the original ruling was thrown out. So she gets out of prison. She goes back on house arrest to be able to have a new trial. In 2016, Dahlia went to trial again. This time, rather than claiming that the whole plot had been Mike's idea to try to get onto reality TV, Dahlia's defense claimed that the presence of the TV show Cops had blown everything out of proportion for the sake of television drama, which, like, to be fair, that is cop, like, that show's MO, right? Like, that's kind of the point of it is to make everything seem way more dramatic. And I know there have been cases where people say, like, it has caused a lot of problems in, like, in situations that are happening with them, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that she tried to poison him and, like, planted shit in his car and, like, called anonymous tips on the police trying to get him to go back to prison. So while I think they had a point that, like, the show being there definitely didn't help her and probably made her look worse... I don't think it makes her... I wonder how much worse you can look. I mean, I guess you could be putting a hit out on your five-year-old. That would be worse. That would be worse, yeah. But, definitely. you know. Right. And I mean... You're pretty much down there with the bottom of the barrel already. Exactly. You don't need help from a TV show. And also, I kind of get a kick out of the argument that this show made me look worse by exposing things I actually did. And said out loud. And to that's what I mean. Like people say yeah. that all the time. Well, because the media blows things up, but you still did it. Yeah. I you think that, still like, there said it. can be truth in that, but like the, the you know, basis of what she was doing. Right. And, and they do sometimes just make up a story or yes. take the wrong yeah. take on it. But if you're saying this reality show, it's not like when people go on HGTV and they get told this whole thing and then they have to pay all these taxes and they didn't know. And right. that could really, like, you weren't doing any harm and that really ruined your yeah. life. This is, your life was ruined because you got caught. Exactly. Because the show exactly. was in town. So, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Hot hint. Yep. Don't hire hitmen to murder people. I think that's a good tip. Yeah. Worked for me. Mm, me too. So this trial ended with a hung jury. 
She continued to wait for a retrial and was living under house arrest at her mother's house. She actually became pregnant during this time and gave birth to a son. In 2017, Dahlia faced her third trial. This time, the jury reached a verdict after just an hour and a half of deliberation. She was sentenced to 16 years in prison and was given four years of time served in return for the eight years that she'd spent under house arrest and in prison. Her defense tried to push her case up to the Florida Supreme Court, but her case was rejected without comment. And they actually also tried to put it in front of the US Supreme Court, but that was rejected too. She and her defense are still trying to get Dahlia a new trial. They claim that they will file a motion with a federal judge asking them to review her most recent trial for constitutional violations. And they think that this is their one last chance to get Dahlia a new trial. Meanwhile, while in prison, Dahlia leads a Bible study group. Of course she does. Which is just such a surprise. They you know, do. No one else has ever led a Bible study group from prison. Um, and Dahlia's mother is raising her son until her release, which is currently set for August 24th, 2032. So she's got a while before she's let out. So this might not be the most important point. Mm. But I would be really upset that this person still had my last name. And a Apparently, there's nothing you can do about it. Really? No. Oh, yeah. That really is. Because that's be. tradition. Right. It's not a law, so people can just change their name to, to whatever, whatever they, they want. want as yeah. long as they're not trying to dodge charges by doing it. Wow. Yeah, that would be really frustrating. And, like, the fact that he was really only married to her for, like, six months. Yeah. And this has been going on for years and years and years that he has to deal with this. Oh, must suck. A poor guy. Well, Tori, I'm ready to go have some treats. How about you? Oh, definitely. But first, can I just read my sources? Because I forget every time. Of course you can read your sources. Thank you. So I read an article on allthatsinteresting.com by Marco Margaritoff, an NBC News article, two articles from ABC News, and an article from the South Florida Sun Sentinel by Tanya Alanez. Oh, you know the last episode we did when allthatsinteresting.com was one of my sources. So I know. Let's yeah. go read allthatsinteresting.com because it's super good. So yeah, on that note, I think it's time for some treats. What about you? I think it's time for a treat. You want to do another podcast in a couple weeks? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right, let's do a podcast in a couple weeks. All right, I'll see you let's then. Let's get some cake. Mm, yes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to be part of the conversation, join our social media community on Facebook and Instagram at Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, Twitter at CDSI Pod. If you have a story you'd like us to cover or an experience of your own you'd like us to feature on the podcast, let us know at Cul-de-Sac Insomniac at gmail.com. If you follow us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and a good review. Say something nice about us. It makes us feel good. It helps with the algorithm. And you can go to our website at cul-de-sacinsomniac.com where you can read our show notes and listen to the podcast. And you can sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.